get started. We're in the book of Hebrews. Welcome. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit because Pastor Tony said the 22nd and the 29th there'll be no Sunday school. So what I would like to do is complete Hebrews in the next three Sundays, and then when we reconvene, we'll jump right into the book of James. All right? So here we go. We're going to tie together all those betters uh, as we move through chapters 9 and 10 today. And if I go too fast, I'm ready to dive right into chapter 11 as well. This verse, Hebrews 8, 6, begins to tie everything together. But the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs. Who's theirs? Superior to the ministry of the priests, the high priests, as well as the sacrifice. God will provide himself a sacrifice. As the covenant, a better covenant of which he is mediator and superior to the old covenant, the Old Testament, and is founded on better promises. And we've talked about that word promises several times from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not maybe, it's not I'm changing my mind, it's not we'll see. His promises are yes in Christ Jesus. So the law is a shadow of good things to come. And here we're going to begin tying things together, the, the Lamb and Jesus, all right? He's, he is the atoning sacrifice, 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You look at that picture of Jesus up in the top right, every sin from Adam and Eve and the fruit through every scoundrel and tyrant, to me and to you across the entire gamut of history, the entire gamut of geography, once for all. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. Once for all, unlike the other high priests, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And not by the blood of goats and lambs, goats and, and, and goats, goats and calves, Hebrews 9.11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of his creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most high place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. We're beginning to pull the Old Testament sacrifice along with Jesus Christ, and it wasn't just the lamb that was sacrificed. What kinds of other animals were sacrificed? Goats, oxen, doves, yes, or, or turtle doves when Jesus was taken to the temple. Once for all, he did not enter a man-made sanctuary. And uh, I skipped over the whole discussion of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. Suffice it to say, every one of those pieces is a symbol of something related to Jesus Christ. The showbread... He's the bread of life. The seven uh, lampstand, he's the light of the world. All the way to the mercy seat, 
the mercy, all those, those other things, the bread, of course, was made out of flour. The lampstand was solid gold, but the mercy seat was made out of wood and then encased in gold. That's a picture of the wood, Jesus' humanity, and the gold, Jesus, his godhood. So, Jesus the God-man. The law is only a shadow and could never make perfect. It would be like surfing on Amazon.com and you see all the things that they tell you that you need. You buy one, okay, and when it shows up, you have the type, the shadow, and the anti-type, the real thing. And so the law is like surfing Amazon.com. It tells you about all these things that could be, in the case of the law, that will be. And then when Jesus Christ came, it's just like that prime box that gets dropped off at your front door. Here I am, I have come to do your will. So the sacrifice, physically perfect in age and condition. This is 1 Peter. For you know that it was not with the perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now remember, Peter was a fisherman. And to be a fisherman in that day and age, he was basically uneducated. And I'm not sure what kind of vocabulary he used before he met Jesus. You know, we use the phrase, cussing like a sailor. But imagine that tough guy using the word precious. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. So perfect in age and condition. And there we see the laying on of hands. And what you have there are the, there's the high priest, and these are the other priests. The four on the left would serve in the holy place. The high priest, once a year, would get into the holy of holies behind the veil. And so you have the laying on of hands, and I asked the question about animals. There we see the oxen, the picture of Christ as servant, the sheep, the picture of Christ as innocent, the goats. Now the goats, were that was a special offering because that's where we get the word scapegoat. There would be two goats, and the one... The high priest would lay his hands on that goat and then turn it loose. That was the scapegoat. It, it escaped, you know, this. And the other ended up getting killed and burnt as a burnt offering. Now, we're going to hit a, voice, a, a verse, but I might as well get into it right now because, of, because it's in my brain. There's a verse that says, like a lamb before the shearers, yet he opened not his mouth. That word open is the exact same word they use when they took that lamb and opened his throat, cut the juggler so that they could bleed. Like a lamb before the shearer, yet he opened not his mouth. What did that do? The shedding of the blood, opening up, and then burnt upon the altar. You say, well, that's, that's a, a variance from this, the Holocaust, me, meaning the burnt sacrifice, not World War II. There was a prophecy there. Everything in the law said, you're going to die, based on our behavior. 
And everything in the law for, for a, a, an atonement was you're going to get burned except the scapegoat, okay? The picture of the scapegoat was the, the goat that died was Jesus on the cross, and the scapegoat was Jesus risen. The reason there's a difference is in Deuteronomy, and it's quoted again in Galatians, in Deuteronomy, the Bible talks about cursed is the man who hangs upon the tree. It was a forecast, it was a prophecy that the way Jesus was going to die was totally different than anything that the Jews were, were participating in. So Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 6, talk about taking down the notion of the Levitical law is wonderful. It is wonderful, the Bible says the law is perfect, but Jesus came to fulfill the law, not destroy the law. Verses 7 through 18, now, remember the, the key word in the book of Hebrews was better. In this case, Jesus is better than the law. 1 through 6 is putting the law in its place now that Jesus has come. And 7 through 18 lifts Jesus up. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to mark it up a little bit. Because you're probably going to want to find those verses. And you're going to say, I, I better call John. And that won't work. If, <laughs> well, it will if I pick up the phone. <laughs> and you can do a Google on the words if you remember the words, but right there, and you can take Hebrews 10, 17 and write all those other verses there that describe what God does with confessed sin. Hebrews 10, 17, as well as Isaiah 43 says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Now, please keep in mind the, def the Bible definition of remember and forget when it applies to God. The Bible says, and God remembered Noah. It doesn't mean, he says, oh, Noah, I completely forgot about him. The word remember means to take action. And the word forget is to not take action. God knows the end from the beginning, He knows the beginning from the end, and He knows every single thing that I thought and did, even once confessed. But He forgets my sins, or He doesn't remember my sins, because He's not going to take the just action. So He remembers them no more. As far as the east is from the west, I can go north-south and find the end as far as the earth is concerned, but I can't find the East Pole or I can't find the West Pole. It just keeps on going. And that's how far our sins are from the Lord, as far as the East is from the West. It's an infinite distance. Isaiah 38, 17 says he puts the sins behind our, behind our back. And, and uh, the book of James says, and there is no shadow of turning, which means he's not going to say, oh, yeah, there's John's stuff right there. He puts the sins behind the back, and Micah tells us that the sins are placed in the bottom of the sea, and a lot of people talk about the sea of forgetfulness. So there you have them. If you're not going to remember 10.17, the anchor verse for all this stuff, you can go over the 1 John 1.9 and write in the margins 10.17, because 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now I cover the first two bullets. Here comes the third bullet, calling believers to suitable duties. Day after day, 
every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, sounds very different than once for all, again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. 1 Peter 2.9, the Bible talks us about us as priests and kings. So if I'm a priest and the purpose of the priest is to make sacrifice, what is my sacrifice as my, my priesthood? What is my sacrifice? Service. Okay, there's Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. God didn't ask me to die for him yet. He may. He's asked me to live for him, a living sacrifice, and that's my priestly duty. So what do we have here? Different kinds of lettuce, different forms of lettuce, yes. So we went through some of these. I gave a handout, but we're going to be very careful. Let us be careful. Let us make every effort. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, not like I'm hanging on, but like I love my faith. Let us approach the throne of God with confidence. King James uses the word boldly, but that doesn't mean sassy. It means I'm confident that God's going to hear and answer my prayers. Let us leave the elementary teachings and go on to maturity. And now we come to the lettuce in chapter 10. Let us draw near to God. James tells us, if I draw nigh to God, God will draw nigh to me. He also tells us to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's the case where the devil's doing the fleeing. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, flee you youthful lusts. In other words, there are certain times when you know, every, every animal is given a, an instinct of fight or flight. Now we're way above the animals, right? God breathed into us a living soul and we get both, fight and flight. And when it comes to do with, with the devil, there are times to resist the devil and there are times to flee. Take Joseph and Mrs. Potiphar. He didn't hang out and say, you know, Mrs. Potiphar, we need to talk about this thing. He didn't do that. He bailed out. Oh, forgot one. And let us spur one another on. If I am in a position of fellowship with God, I'm in a position to encourage other people. It, it's not like, uh, Bob, I think you need to go to church, and I don't. That doesn't work that way. So then we come down to verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together. King James uses the word assemble, and I'm going to use that word to make a specific point. Let us not give, it, give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I just... As a lead-in, you need to go to church, as do I. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching that... Whoa, wrong button. What is that? Those are Lego blocks, yes. Uh, if my And I've got, a, I've got this big tote of Lego blocks in my basement. When the, kid, when the grandkids go, they're not in the box anymore. So I get to gather them together, and that's kind of a picture of what that's supposed to be. Now, the word assemble is very different. I've gathered the Legos, but I haven't assembled anything yet. 
there's a symbol. That's a, Le that's a Lego church, okay? And relative to the church, Ephesians says that we're joined and held together. Now, those Lego blocks in the top left, they're joined. I mean, they're touching, but they're not held together. We're to be held together as a local body, being rooted and grounded in love. That's the point. Paul was I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Paul is encouraging the believers to hang together, to hang tough, to be assembled. And to be assembled means every one of us has a particular function. I teach, you usher, uh, everybody is, is praying, the pastor preaches, everybody has a task. To assemble, just like assembling Lego blocks, to assemble ourselves together and all the more as you see the day approaching. <clears throat> when I was first saved, 1979, I'm a baby in Christ compared to some others in this room. When I was saved, just like I'm guessing every young believer, I wanted to study the book of Revelation. And when you tied <clears throat> the book of Revelation to current events, I know I'd be seeing these things in the news and I'm trying to see, does this fit, does that fit? But today, everything fits. Everything fits, from the, the, the grief going on in the Middle East all the way to climate change. Luke tells us that the nations will be perplexed over the roaring of the seas. Some people think New Jersey's going underwater, and some people, including me, the book of Job says that God set down his boundary of the sea and the land, and the only way it's going to change would be if he says it's going to change. It has nothing to do with my carbon footprint. So I'm, go I'm going faster than I anticipated. Good thing I put Hebrews 11 in here. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So I don't know if you can see it from where you're sitting. You've got two little girls. Both have sweatshirts on that say Hebrews 11.1. And both are blind. John Newton, Amazing Grace. John chapter 9. I once was blind, but now I see. Now those little girls are physically blind. But by faith, they can see. So here we are. There's the overview. And we're now into this last segment, superior for life and exhortation. And all those lettuces come together in this one lettuce from chapter 12. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. There are two Greek words for seeing. The one is optio, and I go to the optician to get these things. And the other one is scopio, not scorpion, scopio, like microscope telescope, periscope, to focus on something. And that's the word that's being used there. Scope, put your eyes on Jesus. So many times you hear stories, in fact, I heard it again yesterday, a certain church, the pastor was wonderful, next thing you know, the pastor is a moral failure. If somebody put everything he has into that pastor, that person's faith could be shattered but we're to put our eyes on Jesus. So here we go. Home stretch, 11, 12, and 13. This was going to be the introduction for next week, but we're going to keep moving. What is faith? 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. This is creationism. If you can't accept Genesis chapter 1, what are you going to do with those 66 books and those 35,000 verses? By faith, we accept that God created the universe, that what was, not made, what, what was seen was not made out of things visible. You go all the way back to Bing, Big Bang and everything else, something has got to come from nothing. And so you have Psalm 19, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. And then in Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, so there we're going to tie visible to invisible, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Engineers are doing all right making hands these days, but I've got a son-in-law with a crushed ankle that they, there's no such thing as a fake ankle yet. But God made them 8,000 years ago. And because the invisible qualities of God can be seen by the visible, man is without excuse. Now, how do you please God? You can cheat and look at verse 6. How do you please God? Well, we already had Romans 12, 1 and 2 up there to present my body as a living sacrifice. You please God, the Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please him. So here we go. Abel offered a better sacrifice. What made his sacrifice better? His heart, yeah, okay. Where did the brothers learn sacrifice? Here's a little exhortation. Where did the brothers learn sacrifice? Charlton Heston hadn't made the scene yet. From dad. Where do our kids and grandkids pick up on their faith? From grandmom and grandpop and mom and dad. That's where Abel learned sacrifice. Now, I'm sure Adam taught Abel as well as he did Cain. I'm not going to reconcile the sovereign will of God with the free will of man, and I never will. Why did God favor Abel's sacrifice? Because he sacrificed by faith. Hebrews chapter 11 commends Abel as a righteous man. And finally... His blood still speaks. So we're going to talk about faith in the next 20 minutes. Invisible things about ourselves. Now, this is kind of a twist, so I'm not going to try to get you to answer this question. But what are the invisible things about myself? Here's first one. We can't see Jesus standing as the link between us and heaven. Now, Stephen got to see Jesus standing as that, at that link. When he was being stoned, he said, I saw the heavens opened, and st there was Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. But we don't get to see that. It's by faith that we get to see that. And there's something else that we don't get to see. It's invisible. Is we can't see ourselves as God does, holy and cleansed by the one great sacrifice as Christ. 
Now, God is everywhere, so let's just play pretend. Let's say in the third heavens, there's God. He's on his throne. He's looking down. There's Cain and there's Abel. When he looks at Abel, Abel's covered by the blood. When he looks at Cain, he sees Cain rejecting what dad told him about sacrifice. There's no faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So what do we know about Enoch? He's gone, yes. He pleased God, yes. He walked with God. He did not experience death. Now, I've taught many times the Old Testament saints, when they die, they go to paradise. And then first Easter Sunday, those souls and spirits went with God to heaven. Don't ask me about Enoch or Elijah, because I have no clue. He did not experience death. He proclaimed or he prophesied in the book of Jude, and it's the only, only record in the New Testament we have about Enoch, and he pleased God. Heroes of the faith, and that's what chapter 11 is all about. There was Abel, his faith was from the visible testimony to the invisible. He was in the midst of family pressure. Now, I'm convinced the biggest pressure is peer pressure. Now, I don't go to school anymore, so I don't have those flavors of peers. And since COVID, I haven't made a single in-person sales call, so I don't have those kinds of pressures. But I still have all those demons tracking me down. And that's the pressure, because faith is constantly under attack. If you don't want the devil to bother you, just put your faith on autopilot, and the devil will have you right where he wants you. With Enoch, he was consistent in his walk 300 years. He listened to God, otherwise how could he prophesy? The testimony of a prophet, and this comes from the Mosaic Law, there are two things that have to happen for you to be considered a prophet, and if you blow one out of two, that's a death sentence. The first one has to be consistent with God's word, and the second one is that it's got to happen. So that's, that's the mark of a true prophet. Faith also exists as a response to those facts. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus exists. Well, duh, when I was a kid, I believed that Jesus exists. On a $1 bill is whose picture? You're kidding me. You don't, you don't have any ones. They're all too rich. <laughs> George Washington. Okay. Now, I know of George Washington and chopped down the cherry tree and, and all the different battles and whatever, but I don't know George. I knew of Jesus for 28 years. And then I was introduced to him. I know Jesus. And faith comes by being introduced to Jesus Christ. Now, when that says rewards exist for those who live by faith, what kind of reward is that talking about? 
I'll give you what it's not talking about. It's not talking about salvation. This is written to believers. Yep, crowns, our ministry, our urging one another, our encouraging one another, and then the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit provides. Now, what do we know about Noah? He was a righteous man. Anybody else? Patience, okay. He was blameless. He was a righteous man. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He did all the Lord commanded him. There's another man in the Bible that, that is given that inscription. Aside from Jesus Christ, he did everything. Joshua is the other man in the Bible that says he did everything that was commanded him. And God remembered Noah. God took action. Faith exists as a response to facts. Faith helped Noah cut through the contrary views of the contemporaries. Now, he was building that boat a long time. And his contemporaries and their kids and their kids and their kids probably all walked by that particular building site and probably mocked Noah and his sons. And I said, what are, what are you building there? But keep in mind, it never even rained. Faith helped Noah put up with peer pressure. Faith helped Noah build a boat to protect against rain, which they never experienced before. And faith will enable us to be different. When I would take my kids out to dinner, there's so many, and then the grandchildren, I don't do that anymore. I take them, you know, one at a time. And we would go and we would pray. And one day my Rachel hits me like this and she says, those people aren't praying. It got to the point where they understood that praying is the natural thing to do and not... He said, those, those people aren't praying. Well, I had those kids twisted. I would say, you better behave yourself or you're not going to Sunday school. <laughs> They'd snap right up. <laughs> Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abraham began in the Chaldees. And God spoke to Abraham, and he picked up and he moved. He did not know where he was going, <clears throat> and he didn't go there directly. He went up to Haran and then down into Israel. He did not know where he was going, but he went. And God promised him kids, and we're going to get to see the... Uh, the age that he had gone through, and he promised him real estate, but Abraham filled the grave living in a tent. Abraham was as good as dead. <clears throat> That's in Hebrews. He was as good as dead, and yet <clears throat> God... I'm going to have a problem here, surely. And yet God promised him children. Sarah was barren, and God promised children through Sarah, and so she laughed. So what can Abraham and Sarah teach us about faith? First, faith enables us to take risks. Abraham stepped out on faith, and his only assurance was God talked to him. Faith enables us to overcome our doubts. At first, Sarah laughed. 
Remember Zechariah in the temple? This is Luke chapter 1. The angel came to Zechariah, and he had the same situation as Abraham. He was as good as dead, and his wife Elizabeth was barren. And the angel says to Zechariah, <clears throat> you're going to have a baby. Well, Zechariah didn't accept that as willingly as Mary did. Mary said, be it done unto me according to thy will. Zechariah doubted, and what, what was his uh, recompense? What happened to Zechariah? Deaf and dumb. Faith will enable us to overcome our doubts. Faith can bring vitality back to portions of our lives that seem dead. Any one of us can fall into a faith rut. You can come here every Sunday and be in a faith rut. You can go to home and say your prayers and be in a faith rut. It's just the same thing again and again. But faith can pull us out of that rut. Faith could keep us alive, just like when Abraham said, he's as good as dead. He was in a physical rut. But God took care of him. His ways and his timing do not match ours. Now, I will tell you, one of my biggest problems is patience. And if I pray, it would probably be something like, God, I want patience and I want it now. The book of Romans tells us that tribulation renders patience and patience character and character hope. James tells us that every trial is to help us to build our patience. Thank you, Rod. <clears throat> You're an angel of mercy. Don't let that get around. <clears throat> Hope that does the trick. His ways and his timing do not match ours. So there's the background of Abraham and Sarah. He was 75 years old when he left Haran. Remember, he started at Ur of the Chaldees, went up to Haran, and then from Haran he went down into Israel. He was 75 years when he made that trek. He was 80 years old. That's 86. So he's, he was nine years in the making, and in those nine years, what happened? His faith failed so that he and Sarah went down into Egypt. The uh, Abimelech gave him Hagar as a handmaid. And then they came up with a great idea. Faith is not, not my ways or my timing, thus saith the Lord. So Sarah says, you know, I'm barren, and you've been promised kids. So here's, here's Hagar. Go do your thing. It wasn't until Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. And Sarah was 90. Can you imagine 90 years old and having the baby? Sometimes I get to watch the grandchildren, and when they go home, I say to Jenny, there's a reason kids are given when I'm young. <laughs> Abraham and Isaac. Now, this is one of the most wonderful stories in Scripture as far as I'm concerned. It's chapter 22. Faith allows us to give away the most precious. Think about it. Abraham spent 25 years waiting for Isaac, and then Isaac grows up and becomes a teenager, so however many years that was, and then God says, you've got to give up Isaac. It was by faith 
that allowed him to raise that knife. The good news for us is, died once for all. Jesus died once for all. So if somebody starts talking about weirdo sacrifices, it's, it's, it's not there. Faith allows us to give away the most precious. Faith makes the next life a reality. There's a reality in living for Jesus. And the more I study scripture, the more I look at heaven and I say, that song is right. I can't even imagine what's going to be happening up there. I can't imagine. All, all I know for sure is there's going to be a choir and it's going to be pretty. We're not asked to slaughter today. Christ died once for all. So Habakkuk coined the phrase, the just shall live by faith. Now I'm using King James because the, the King James doesn't change those words verse by verse. The NIV sometimes says righteous and sometimes, at any rate. It's quoted several times in the New Testament. And I'm convinced Paul was the author for each of those times. And in Romans, the emphasis is on the word just. The just shall live by faith. Then in Galatians, the just shall live by faith. And ultimately in Hebrews, the just shall live by faith. And that phrase, by faith, appears 22 times in the book of Hebrews. So, chapter 12, I might, get, I might be done with uh, Hebrews before the three weeks are gone. <laughs> Living for Jesus through the example of Christ himself. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Growing through the lessons of life. This is the whole, these are the outlines of, of chapter 12. And life is quite the teacher. You know, there's the, this is an old saying, experience is the best of teachers. The second half is few are they that learn thereby. You can translate that into a more macro view and say history repeats itself, experience. But chapters 12, verses 4 through 17 talk about life's experiences and how we ought to learn from those experiences. And then finally, the last verses, verse 18 and on, talk about a comparison of Sinai versus Zion. Now, in the book of Galatians, uh, that idea is expanded upon when, when Paul says, you know, you have Sarah and you have Hagar. You have Sinai and you have Zion. Sinai, the picture of the Mosaic law. Zion, the picture of the crucifixion. And the Bible says in the book of Galatians, you have to throw out the handmaid. You have to throw out those dead works. And chapter 6 in Hebrew said that you have to give up the, the notion of repenting of dead works, talking about the rubrics of, of the law. Consider Jesus. What does that word consider mean? It means to think carefully about. It means to give regards to. So consider considers waste to be criminal. It's, it's sort of a judging thing. But then you go down to Numbers 5 and 6, and you see to esteem or regard and to look at thoughtfully. 
Several years ago, there was a fad where they had these little elastic or rubber bracelets with WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now, I don't know what happened to the fad, but you can still ask the question, what would Jesus do given any situation? What would Jesus do? He would always pick the high road. Discipline is encouraging, question mark, exclamation point. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 6. The Bible says, he chastens everyone that he receives. And if you're without chasing, you're illegitimate. God chastens me because he wants me to be a better person. I guess we'll consider this an overview, and we'll take the next two weeks to, to expand on them. Do not forget to do good. This is, this is back to that notion of encouraging one another, and here's the author wanting to encourage us, to encourage us to brotherly love, to hospitality. Now, what does hospitality mean in the context of church? Welcoming. That's ex he hit the nail on the head. And Mount Vernon has always been good about reaching out to somebody who's just come in, as opposed to and our pastor's really good. He's got the true gift of hospitality. Christian sympathy. What does that mean? Christian sympathy. You've heard the phrase, hate the sin but love the sinner? Christian sympathy means, and we're going to come into current events and the lobby is filling with people. Tolerance versus endorsement. We've got some crazy things going on in our country. And we're being asked not just to tolerate, but to endorse. Christian sympathy is to love the sinner, but hate the sin. And sometimes that's hard to do because I still have this carcass that I'm living in. And I've got this prejudice and I've got this bias. And now I'll go on all the way down to the bottom. Christian contentment. Now, I'm going to give this testimony, and then we're going to be done. I don't know why, but in these past two years, I have been filled with such contentment and such peace. I don't know if it's because the COVID got me out of airplanes and hotels. I don't know if it's because I have two brand-new grandbabies, but I am a happy camper. Things are just... I, I, I can't put it into words the transformation that has come to me over the past two years, and I can't explain it. It's got to be a God thing. And it's 945, so we have to quit.
darkness now.